Well, we find ourselves today in the book of 1 Peter uh, once again. Um, this is the 16th time that I'm preaching out of the book of 1 Peter. <clears throat> and I'm discovering that I'm having a hard time um, ending it. Uh, I think it's Peter's fault. He keeps saying things that uh, kind of uh, need further attention and assessment and probing a little deeper and understanding it and, of course, applying it. So I've settled on two verses today, uh, verses 8 and 9 in 1 Peter 5, and the sermon title is The Roaring Lion. And you'll see why as we get into the text. Um, yeah, noticeable uh, thing there in uh, verse 8. <clears throat> One of the purposes of this sermon is to remind us that we have an enemy. We have a brutal, attacking, destructive, unrelenting enemy. And he's described in these verses here. And uh, one of the uh, purposes of the sermon is to have a little bit of uh, doctrine of Satan, if you want to call it that. That would be maybe sort of a byline for the sermon. And I think uh, I had to think of to myself this week as I was studying and preparing, how would it be to have been a Christian or even just to be the recipient of Peter's letter and to read these verses for the first time. Um, we've sort of grown up in our culture, of course. We've memorized these verses. We know that these verses are there. And sometimes it seems like maybe they don't have quite the impact just because of our familiarity with them. It's actually quite a statement. It's a very sobering statement. I think it's interesting to note that Peter is the one writing this, and maybe this statement is sort of comparable to the um, declaration that Jesus said to Peter, it seems, where he said, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name, and he's sifting you like wheat. That's sort of the um, gist of what Jesus said to Peter. I think pretty much talking to Peter. Another time, Peter, the more outspoken of the disciples, it seems. Um, remember, Jesus was predicting his death and suffering, and Peter uh, rebuked him for that. And Jesus tells Peter, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. And I think if I would be, have been Peter in those times, I would have maybe sort of taken a step back. And uh, um, it's kind of like, you know, whoa, what kind of announcement is that? What kind of statement is that? And I can't help but wonder if Peter is maybe sort of thinking about some of those things that Jesus spoke to him as he writes this. Imagine this morning that you were at the zoo and you're there with your family and you're wandering around maybe with small children you're walking around the park or the zoo, and suddenly over the PA system comes the announcement, something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, we wish to inform you that the lion has escaped his enclosure and is roaming around the park. What would be your response? Well, lions, we know, are actually big cats. They are called the king of the jungle because they have basically no predators. Um, the only known predators to lions in the African jungle are alligators and people with guns. So they are the predator that attacks other vulnerable creatures and they attack and pounce. They are very agile. They are very smart. And 
like I said, very big and um, hard to defend. They have large mouths with teeth that are, they are able to sink into their prey, uh, either into the backbone uh, of an animal to disable the animal, to paralyze it, and ultimately they uh, kill many times by sinking their teeth into the neck of the prey, killing it, suffocating it. Again, one of the purposes of the sermon this morning, one of the goals that I have is to remind us all that we have an enemy. He's a real enemy, an invisible enemy, a deadly enemy, far deadlier than any lion that we'll ever see or come across here on this earth. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he says. We're not wrestling against actual lions. But we're wrestling against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places, heavenly places. So I want to just unpack these two verses here in verses 8 and 9. And there's four things about the lion that I want to um, talk about, how Satan is like a lion. First of all, I want to talk about his identity. Then his strategy, I want to talk about his territory and his frailty. Let's think, first of all, about his identity. Notice in verse 8, it says that he is our adversary, the devil. Your adversary, the devil. Let's just think about that. The word devil is the Greek word diabolos, and it means one who slanders, one who tells the untruth. And in other places in Scripture, Satan is called the father of lies. And I think it is easily the number one attribute or the one thing that is especially outstanding about our enemy, Satan. He is a liar. He slanders. He is a person or a being that attacks another being, people, by saying lies. The word devil is used 35 times, or this Greek word is used 35 times in Scripture. 35 times he's called the devil. Another 54 times he is referred to as Satan. Five times he's called the evil one. Eight times he's called the wicked one. He is also called the destroyer. He is called Abaddon, Apollyon, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the serpent, and a bunch of other descriptive terms. I was actually quite amazed as I sat and thought about all the different terms that Satan is used, or words, names that are used that are descriptive of, of this enemy, this roaring lion. First time he appears is in Genesis chapter 3, and his career finally ends in Revelation chapter 20. And it's interesting that in the Bible, the first two chapters of the Bible have the absence of Satan, and the last two chapters have the absence of Satan. And in between, you can see his work in basically every chapter and maybe even um, every aspect of all the different stories that are in between that. He is busy doing his work, but there was a day when he was not in control, and there will be a day when he is not when he no longer has the power. I'm excited about that, and we'll touch about that just a little bit later on. <clears throat> now, I realize that we live in a day and age where a lot of people deny the existence of a literal devil. It is um, not necessarily a new thing, I believe, but it certainly is a fad of our day today. I think it's uh, maybe gaining in popularity where people tend to not see Satan as a real being, um, maybe just sort of like a cartoon character who has tight little red underwear and a funny goatee. He carries a pitchfork and shovels coal into some hot furnace. The Gallup poll, the Gallup organization, 
Um, in 2009, I couldn't find a more recent one. I would guess that these numbers may be even heightened since 2009. I can't prove that. But the Gallup poll uh, asked Americans whether or not they believe in a devil, and 70% of Americans said that he's just a metaphor for evil. Like the word Satan or the word devil just stands for everything that's, that's bad, not an actual being. Well, that doesn't really concern me that much. I think uh, America as a whole is becoming more unchurched, more and more so. But here's what does concern me. The same organization, the, the uh, uh, let me say a different organization, the Barna Group, surveyed Christians, people who claim to be born-again Christians. And they, the poll was a statement, and this is the statement. Do you agree with... Uh, here's the statement. The devil is not an actual living being, but just a symbol of evil. And of those that were polled, 40% said that they strongly agree with that statement. Another 19% said that they agree somewhat, and 8% said that they don't know, and that adds up to like 67%, almost the same as society. This was from born-again Christians. Leaning to the idea that the devil is not a real entity, but he is just a symbol of evil, or they don't know. <clears throat> Let me just put out several questions here in case I'm talking to somebody that feels that way. Question one, why can't a literal being also be a symbolic representation of evil? Why does it have to be one or the other? How much stock do you put in the words of Jesus concerning the devil? And I think that's a real question. I think that's a real issue. Is your authority indeed from the Bible? Do you put stock in what Jesus said and what the Bible says about the devil? You see, 15 times in the Gospels, we have teaching from Jesus about Satan. And when Jesus talked about Satan or the devil, he never referred to him as an it or a that but he talks about Satan as a he and a him, personal pronouns that Jesus uses to describe and talk about Satan. For instance, in Luke 10, Jesus said, I, talking about himself, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Those are words from his own personal experience and, um, yeah, Jesus was there when it happened. In both the Old and New Testament, Satan is described as being very intelligent and having motives in the things that he does. He has willpower, and he has a very good memory. He is organized and intentional. D.L. Moody, the famous preacher, used to say, I believe in a literal devil for two reasons. Number one, the Bible says that he exists, and number two, I've done business with him. And I think that's something that uh, maybe more of us could say. Something about this lion that we read about here in 1 Peter is that Peter describes him as a roaring lion, the title of our sermon today, seeking whom he may devour. Um, furthermore, he is wandering around, and we see that at various other places in the, in the Bible where Satan is described as walking or wandering around on, in the, in the, on the earth. <clears throat> However, this roaring lion often wears a disguise. He does not often or always come to us as a lion, a scary um, cat-like creature, but he comes to us 
like a wolf in sheep's clothing at times. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it tells us that he masquerades as an angel of light. That's quite different than what we're talking about here. But the point is that Satan is all about the deception. He's all about the covering up of his identity. He doesn't come off to us as an enemy, but as a friend. He's sneaky, you see. When Satan first appeared to Eve, he did so by questioning God's character and by projecting himself as better than God, as more friendly than God, as more um, generous than God. For instance, he asked about the tree in the midst of the garden, and he said, Yea, hath God said, Is it true that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And basically, the the gist of the deception and the temptation to Eve is that God was not good enough. God was withholding something from them. And he, on the other hand, Satan, was being more generous and giving them what they wanted or needed or deserved. Deceptive and friendly, not at all like a lion. I think too often I find myself and maybe a lot of Christians or a lot of the world is, is not so much seeing Satan as a lion, but sometimes we're like, here, kitty, kitty, sort of like a, a friendly kind of relationship. We don't know for sure and uh, ignore what the real intent is of the deception and the temptation. I think it's important for us... Um, I think this verse indicates that we have a relationship with Satan. I think he's looking at and observing all Christians, all believers. I think the point that this text makes is that our relationship, our relationship to Satan needs to be as an enemy, not as a friend. For all born-again believers, I think he is indeed our enemy. He is our adversary, like the King James Version says. It's better to have that relationship. It's better that the, enemy, that the devil be your enemy, not your friend. So that's his identity. Let's look next at his strategy. Peter says that he walks around. You get the picture? He's on the prowl. He is moving around. He doesn't stay at one place. He walks around seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. And that word devour is actually a very strong word. It means to eat. It means to gulp down, to consume. Sort of like we, we eat food, that sort of thing. He is looking to consume us, to devour us, to destroy us. As I looked at uh, this pattern throughout the Bible, <clears throat> I uh, yeah, decided to identify people or things that he is looking to consume, primary targets of Satan. He is seeking to devour or destroy, and I, I've found at least four primary things that um, Satan is targeting, targets of Satan. Sometimes it could feel like he is all about targeting me, and we personalize this, where we see Satan as um, against us. Well, he, he is, but throughout Scripture, we can also see him targeting other uh, in, in entities and and I'd just like to leave this with you. Some of his primary targets, I think, first of all, throughout Scripture, we can see him targeting Jesus Christ. Um, maybe especially while Jesus was here on earth, there was just an intense barrage of attacks on Jesus himself, looking to destroy him from the time that he was a baby until the time that he was on the cross. Uh, there was just a strong attempt, and even maybe all the way up to the resurrection, the, uh, there was false stories being put out about his resurrection and that sort of thing. Uh, just a strong attack on Jesus Christ. 
I think it goes all the way back to Genesis. In chapter 3 there, the edict that Jesus or God gives to the woman and to the snake, the serpent, the devil, he says there's going to be coming a day where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. And it is so interesting to go through Scripture and see that pattern happening all the way up until Jesus. And there is, um, yeah, there will be a time where Satan's attacks will be finally and completely ended by Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the snake. In chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, there is a scene that's described by John where there is a woman about to give birth to a, a baby boy, a boy child, and the illustration is pretty clear that it's the nation of Israel that's about to bring Jesus into the picture, and there is a dragon, a, it says it's, it's, it's Satan, that is waiting to consume the boy child as soon as it's born to take it away. And that is true for not only at Jesus at his birth, but throughout his whole existence. Um, Satan has had and still has a focused attack on Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that he attacks us is because we have Jesus Christ's power in our lives. He hates him. He's trying to destroy Jesus. He's against the gospel. And I think it's one of the reasons, like I said, the reason he hates you and me is because he hates him. So I think, I think Jesus Christ is Satan's primary target and competitor. Another target of the devil is the holy angels. Now we can see that a few times in scripture that they, they are spiritual combatants. There's spiritual war going on in a number of places in, in the scripture, we can see it in Daniel chapter 10. There are heavenly hosts that are doing battle. Again, in Revelation chapter 12, right in that same passage that I mentioned earlier, there is war in heaven. And Michael and his angels, the good angels, are battling the, the bad angels, are fighting the dragon and his armies. I think also on this list is the nation of Israel. And some of this is maybe my personal opinion. I realize that maybe some of you would take a different position, but I think if you look at the whole of Scripture, you can see Satan taking a very deliberate position against Israel. And I think I mentioned this earlier, that one of the reasons is that Jesus came into the world through the nation of Israel. The Jews brought Jesus into the world. The Jews brought the Bible, the, for the most part, brought the Word of God into um, the world. And you can see throughout the stories of Scripture, God making promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and, and others about them and about their land and about the Messiah and the plan of salvation. And I believe that the Bible indicates not only that Israel was an objective of the past, but he is a major, the nation of Israel is a major objective in the plan of God for the future. So the devil is and has been attacking the nation of Israel. And in the tribulation period, if you look at the prophecies about the tribulation, there is, it's like there's no holds barred any longer. There is an, a more fierce attack on the nation of Israel than at any point now and, and prior, <clears throat> fiercer than ever. And then also, I think, um, another one of Satan's major targets, and I think I've already emphasized this, is that it's believers. He fights believers. He's looking around, walking the earth, looking for people, believers, to destroy, to devour. This passage says that he is your adversary makes it kind of personal. He is your enemy, and he attacks you. He attacks Christ. He attacks angels. He attacks the nation of Israel, but he goes after you. He's your enemy. He's your adversary. He has tricks and things that are designed to trip you up so that you become devoured by him, that he keeps you from getting 
God's work done. He keeps you from doing what he wants, what he is, what God has designed for you to do here in this, in this uh, world. Let's look at some of his tactics. Some of Satan's tactics. <clears throat> I don't have time to give all of them. I've picked out just a few. One of the very um, definitions of the name devil, I've already told you, is slanderer. And one of the things that Satan, one of his major primary tactics is to slander individuals, to, to bring lies into um, the picture. And that is a major um, part of his, who he is. Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren. And when he came to God in the book of Job, remember that story? I'll be referring to it a few more times here. He was accusing um, Job of serving God because of motive. He said, the reason Job is serving you, God, is because he has a pleasant life and he's, he's well-to-do. That's why he's serving you. So that was uh, slanderous. So one of the ways that he tries to attack us, to attack you, is by accusation. And he accuses you before God. I think Job indicates that. He accuses God to you. He, like he did to Eve, he, makes, he accuses God of not being good or not being desirable or um, that sort of thing. I think in addition to that, we can also see in Scripture how that Satan accuses your brothers and sisters to you, and you to your brothers and sisters. I think one of Satan's primary tactics is division. Always trying to divide. He is the accuser of the brethren. Another tactic toward believers is what's mentioned here in the text, and that's persecution. I think some translations um, use the word in verse 9, uh, and uh, King James Version uses the word afflictions, and that word is translated in some other translations as sufferings or persecutions, and I think that is uh, a primary thrust of verse 9. The same afflictions that are experienced by your brothers in the world he persecutes believers. And just a, a, an interesting, um, yeah, just a fact, I think that in the last 100 years, it, well, let me say this before I go further, that it's, I think sometimes easy for us to think that suffering and persecution is sort of historical. And it is. But in the last 100 years, the last century, more Christians have been mortar, martyred for their faith than all of the Christians who died were martyred for their faith from the time of Jesus up to the last 100 years. All of those centuries combined, there's been more persecution recently than in all of the other uh, 1900 years. Well, how would Satan devour a Christian? I think there's several di different ways, and I think one of the ways that he does that is by making us weak or trying to make us weak. That's his aim. If he can, if he can neutralize a Christian, if he can find a way to take the testimony of a Christian away, he does it by distracting a Christian, or just making a Christian careless or anemic or ineffective or weighed down. Those are all things that Satan uses to distract a believer. Gets us distracted with piddly little things that are short-term and temporal. You're this, you're that, your career, your boat, your project, your own stuff. And he just gets us swimming in all kinds of things that are not about advancing the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so here's the bottom line. Satan is hungry and gullible, unprepared, distracted Christians are on his menu. He is looking for Christians that are not alert 
that are not watching. As I was considering this text this week, and I thought about Peter and the time that this was written, probably in 50 or 60-something A.D., and have, as I thought about his use of the metaphor about lines, I found myself wondering where Peter got his observations about lines. I had the privilege of seeing lions sort of in the wild in Africa when we traveled there in 2001. I'm sorry, 2000. Yeah, it was 2000, we were in Africa. But most of my observations about lions are at the zoo. And I tend to doubt that there were zoos in Peter's time. I tend to doubt that I think that's sort of a recent phenomenon. But he was alive during the Roman Empire when it was at its zenith. And I wonder if Peter is thinking about the Colosseums as he makes his comparison to Satan like a lion. Where there were lions turned loose into the Colosseum on Christians. I don't know. I want to continue now and take us back to the book of Job and talk about how one of Satan's strategies is to study his victims, his potential victims. He is walking around seeking whom he may devour. That word seeking implies kind of like making a study or observing or watching. One of the best illustrations is in the book of Job, chapter 1 and 2. Both of those chapters are pretty similar in the, in the fact that there was a discourse between Satan and God. And God says some of the same things to Satan that in chapters 1 and 2. And Satan also says some of the same things or the same idea is given by Satan in chapter 1 and 2. It's sort of a two discourses that are sort of repeats one from the other. And in both places, God asks the devil what he's been doing. What have you been up to? And Satan says, well, I was just walking around to and fro on the earth, or something like that, he says. And then God says, have you considered my, ser my servant Job? And it's a very rhetorical question. God knows that Satan has been considering him. He's been studying Job. The word consider means to set your heart on, to observe, to study. It's like God is saying, you've been studying Job, right? You've been looking at him very carefully. You've been eyeballing him. Consider is a military term. It's like a, a general, an army general, would do before an attack. He would, he would be laying out plans and figuring out the best means of attack, looking for the best time to attack. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, describes himself as the good shepherd, and he compares himself to the thief. And it's, uh, I think, talking about our enemy. The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. And thieves probably at some points or another are impulsive creatures or people, but thieves, I think, often will have a plan as they uh, go about their attack. And I think that's the point that Jesus, one of the points that Jesus is making here. <clears throat> His intent is to kill and to destroy. 
Now we know that hell was not originally made for people. God didn't make hell. I, I don't think the Bible indicates that hell was created for, for people. It was created for Satan and his armies. It was made for the devil and his angels. But misery loves company. We know that. And Satan wants to get as many people with him in hell as possible. He and his minions want humanity to join them in hell. And that leads me to make a couple of conclusions about, about Satan. <clears throat> I think it's true that Satan is actively studying you. And that makes me feel a little unnerved to think about that. It kind of creeps me out. But we have an enemy that's studying us. He is observing our weaknesses, my weaknesses, yours. There are areas in my life and yours where you're more prone to fall. And Satan is observing those and um, laying those out for you. It could be some sort of vice, maybe anger or lust or pornography or some bad habit or addiction. For others, it might just be insecurity and uh, lying, trying to project an image that um, we are something that we're not. Whatever it is, we have an enemy that knows those areas of weakness. And he sends temptations our way to attack those weak areas in our lives. I think one of the easiest ways that we can tell whether a temptation or a testing is from God or from Satan, is this. I think Satan attacks us at our weak areas. God tests us on our strong points. And it takes discernment sometimes to, to, to think about it in that way. But I, that helps me to think about it. God tests believers too, but he tests us in our strong points. Satan attacks our weak areas. Next description here is Satan's territory. And I'm just looking at the little phrase in verse 9 where it talks about in the world. And I think that's Satan's territory. Resist him, it says, steadfast in the faith, knowing that these same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. That's Satan's territory. Did you know that three times Jesus Christ referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. I don't actually like that. It's interesting that Jesus himself called him that, the ruler of this world. I'd rather sing the song, This is My Father's World. And I think that song is true as well. But Satan is referred to by Jesus as the ruler of the world. I think there is a fact where it is God's by creation and it is his world by a sovereign purpose where he controls everything. Nothing that happens in the world is outside of his watch. I think the Bible indicates that Satan has liberties and freedoms to a point. And he's on a leash. Sometimes I wish that the leash would be a little shorter, though. Going back to Job chapter 1, the story that I started a little bit ago, like I said, there came a day where Satan and um, other spiritual beings were called into account. I can't really explain that further than that. Um, but Satan appears before God as well in that crowd. And God has questions for him. And God has interaction with Satan in that level. It's a sort of a heavenly scene. I think you could say that in, at least to a point, Satan also has access to at least um, that part of heaven. And that might seem sort of like a shocker. But Satan, as close as I can tell, looking by observation, he is not in hell. Not yet. He is in the world. He is walking to and fro on the earth. He's looking, he's actively looking to deceive. He's actively, actively looking to devour. He is in the world at this time. So that's his territory. And I've saved the best for last. And that's his frailty. Satan's frailty. The Bible is very clear that Satan operates within parameters. He can only act by 
permission from God in certain, th- certain ways. And, in, and he, he can only act in ways that is in line with God's purposes. For instance, I already told you that some of the strongest um, language and the song, strongest descriptions we have of Satan at work was in the Gospels when Jesus was here on earth. And remember the story there about the um, Gadarean um, lunatic? Actually, the one gospel says there was two men. Um, the demons needed permission to enter the swine. And there's something about that sort of brings comfort to me, that those demons, as wild as and uncontrollable as, as those demons were, they needed permission uh, it just helps me to know that the enemy who is attacking and studying me and attacking me has a Lord, and that Lord is Jesus Christ. Satan is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He can only go so far. And I think what that means, the Bible indicates that when I'm in the fire of a testing or when I'm in the fire of a temptation, I can know that God has his eye on me and that his finger is on the thermostat. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we have that familiar, wonderful promise. And also here in verse 9 of our text, he uses the word affliction, and it implies that the sufferings, the persecutions the afflictions that we have in our lives and the saints in who, were, who Peter was writing to, um, God is in control of all of that. And I, I think that's, that's wonderful. <clears throat> so Satan has parameters. The text turns now and gives us some instructives, some instructions on how we should fight the devil and how we should come against him. And I want to close with that. It indicates that Satan has limits and that he is a certain amount of frailty. And I take great pleasure in in, uh, saying that. The first thing we see here is that we need to be sober. Soberness is indicated as a way to fight the devil. And the word sober here means self-controlled or under the control of, um, or let me say it to the negative, not under the control of something that is um, overriding our own control. Um, Colossians talks about not being intoxicated, um, not under the influence. Um, And there's lots of things that we can be intoxicated with. There's lots of things that we can be under the influence of. And there's a lot of things that I find myself caught up in and under the control of where things and addictions and pressures around me are informing my decisions. Here it just says be sober. Be under Be sober-minded. Be under the control of yourself. Don't be intoxicated. And the battle, you know, begins in the mind. It always begins in the mind. As Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We need to think clearly. Be sober. And then he says we need to be vigilant, alert. It was pointed out that our Sunday school lessons last week and this week, I think, had five or six times we're told to be alert, to be watching, to be um, aware of what's going on. We need to be alert, on the lookout. Don't fall asleep on the job. Again, I think of Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what what were Jesus' words to them? He says, watch and pray. And they didn't. They fell asleep. They were not alert. wonder if Peter was thinking about that as he writes this. Be sober, be vigilant. There's a third one, and it's in verse 9. We must resist him. Whom resist? We need to take steps to fight him. He must be resisted. In chapter 4 of James, 
we're instructed to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Great promise. Resist him. Steadfast, he says. Steadfast in what? Steadfast in the faith. I think it's really interesting to notice the article of the here in uh, verse 9. It's important. He does not say resist him in faith, although that could be true, but he says resist him in the faith. The faith. And I think when he's talking about the faith, he's talking about the truth that's rooted in Scripture. In Jude chapter 1, there is only one chapter there, but in verse 3, he says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And I think he's talking about the body of truth, the Bible. I think he's talking about the Scriptures. How did Jesus do when, he, when the devil assaulted him? Well, he used Scripture. And interestingly enough, he used Scriptures from Deuteronomy and places of Scripture that are not so familiar to us. Jesus confronted Satan using Scripture. It is written, he said. It is written three times. It is written. But you know something? Before we can say it is written, we have to be familiar with what is written. And we have to believe and embrace what is written. <clears throat> the fourth thing that I see here, and it's a little bit more obscure, and that is we need to be together. <clears throat> when he is writing this text in the greater context, if you go all the way back to verse 5, we can see that he's not writing to an individual necessarily. He's writing to a group of individuals. In verse 5, he says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. All y'all. He's talking to a group. All of you all. And you see that same thing brought out in verse 9, where he talks about your brethren. And I think this is just simply a reminder that there's a principle to that. He's, he's talking to a group, not just to an individual. Be together. You know how lions attack their prey in the wild, in Africa when they hunt? When there's a herd of animals, they are intentional about isolating an animal. And I think that's instructive for how Satan does that. He wants to isolate us from the brethren, like it talks about in verse 9. The brethren. I want to just assure you, best I know, that you're safer in the group. You're vulnerable when you're by yourself, when you're isolated. In fact, I think it's possible to make a point and say that when you are isolated, you're already prey. You're already captured. You need the herd. You need the group of believers. You need a church. A family of believers, the brethren. We're stronger when we're together. I want to close now with this thought that is just such a blessing and the most positive thing of anything that I'm saying today probably. This scripture and the sermon today hopefully has depicted Satan as a vicious lion, a powerful lion. But I want to tell you something. This lion is only a second-rate lion. There's a stronger lion. There's a greater lion that the Bible talks about. Scripture calls Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And throughout prophecies, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Hosea, in Job, and in the book of Joel, God is described as a lion that roars. He is a stronger, more powerful, roaring lion than the one that is described here in these verses and what we talked about today. In Hosea chapter 11, the prophet, the prophet predicted that the Lord will roar from Zion. And he did. And he does. 
and he will. When Jesus was on the cross dying, our Lion King, the true Lion of the tribe of Judah, roared. And he cried out with a loud voice and he said, It is finished. And when he made that proclamation, I think he was talking about maybe several things, but I think one of the things that he was talking about is that everything that is needed for us to, to win is in place. Our salvation is not completed in the full sense of it, but everything that's needed for us to be saved and to become saved is in place. It has been finished. There is nothing additional that's needed. And one day, Satan, the lion, according to the book of Revelation, is going to be fired by Jesus, the lion. And I'm not talking about let go of a job, although that could be true. I mean fired in the sense that he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. He's going to be fired eternally. In John chapter 20, verse 10, it says that Satan is going to be bound and he's going to be cast in with the beast and the false prophet and he's going to be tormented day and night. It's one of the more satisfying verses in the Bible. No devil in the last two chapters of the Bible, no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible. And those chapters depict, I think, the real picture of what God intended for the universe. Satan is going to get his punishment, and it's going to be an eternal punishment. It's not just some temporary punishment. This malicious being that's been out attacking God and attacking people, attacking believers, attacking the nation of Israel, attacking Jesus himself, is going to be brought to judgment. He's going to be cast into hell. But until then, he is roaming around. And until then, we need to be resolute. We need to be alert. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be clear in our thinking. We need to be disciplined in our thoughts and actions. We need to be watchful, and we need to be winning. And we can rest in the promise that it talks about in the Bible when it says that greater is he that is in us. That's Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. If you're able, I invite you to kneel as we pray. Lord, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I pray, Father, for your power to be realized and poured out in our lives, collectively, individually, and in this world. I pray with the prayer that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask, Lord, for complete and continual deliverance for your people and for your program, that it would go forth into all the world, that it would not be hindered in any way by Satan, the lion who seeks to devour us. And I pray, Father, that you would just do a work in all of our lives and help us to be yielded and submitted to you, Jesus Christ, our lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the greater lion. I pray that you would help us to, to be submitted to you and to allow you to accomplish your purpose and plan in our lives. I pray through Christ. Amen.